Hi, welcome to the Room Now podcast. It is March the 10th, 2023, and I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. The podcast is brought to you by Room Now Live. One of the exciting sessions we're going to have, and it's just next week, is going to be a week from Saturday on the 18th. We got a great, great session, two-hour session on vasculitis. Uh, the great Rob Spire from HSS is going to talk about new therapies in PMR and GCA. Anisha Dua from uh, Northwestern is going to talk about how to assess GCA and PMR patients. And then batting cleanup, Carol Langford from the Cleveland Clinic is going to talk about new therapies for GPA. We're going to end it with a half hour of Q&A with you, the audience. Hope to see you there. This week on the podcast, I got a lot on vasculitis. I'm going to touch on scleroderma, on myositis, on cancer and psoriatic arthritis. I'm even going to wrap up with um, some information about does therapy that we give for psoriasis prevent psoriatic arthritis? What? Let's start. I saw this at the beginning of the week, put it up there because I don't know if it's true or not. A research survey by the Massachusetts Medical Society of 600 doctors said that about half of these docs in the Northeast have cut back their patient clinic time and that one in four of them, nearly 25%, plan to leave medicine in the next two years. Over half of them admitted to being burnt out and that was even more common in women than in men. This doesn't speak well to the future of medicine, does it not? But then again, I wonder uh, when you add, when I, I've done these studies, these surveys, and you ask docs about do they intend to retire, everyone's kind of on the verge of being fed up. But do they really retire? I think that I'd worry about this kind of data, but I don't know that it's going to be true. So, what do you think? Let's get into some of the vasculitis. They got five different reports on vasculitis here. Um, maybe four. Um, first, uh, a cohort study of 78 patients with GCA, giant cell arteritis, um, looked at imaging and um, how many of them had uh, evidence of aortitis. So actually, the actual number was 82 patients with GCA, um, and they were selected for having aortitis. 78% of those with GCA and aortitis um, were detected by both CT angiograms and FDG PET scans. Turns out that if you were CT angio positive, you had a high risk of relapse of your GCA. If you were uh, CTA negative, you had a much lower risk. It was like 70% versus 29%. But then again, if you got GCA and aortitis, are you not going to have more severe disease do you not expect a rocky road up ahead it's kind of common sense but then again it does speak to the value of both pet and cta here and again in their multivariate analyses while pet was uh, and cta were both good and having both was better than having one turns out that cta was more predictive of developing future relapse than was pet Something to consider if you're doing this kind of testing in patients with GCA. There's a proof of concept study that I found interesting. It's rituximab in polymyalgia rheumatica. 
Why would you do that? Well, some patients are difficult to treat. This is called the BRIDGE-PMR study. And in this study, 47 patients with, I guess, difficult to treat PMR received one dose of IV rituximab, 1,000 milligrams, and they followed them for a year. Basically, if you, if you looked at these patients, and there was no control here, half the patients um, who did receive the rituximab were in glucocorticoid-free remission at one year. Wait, there was a placebo control here. So, and being glucocorticoid-free with placebo was only 21%. So you had double the rate of glucocorticoid withdrawal if you received this one dose of rituximab. Um, turns out that uh, adverse events were about the same in both groups. I think this is strong enough data to actually do a good study of IV rituximab, either as continued therapy or as induction therapy in patients with GCA. Again, we're, uh, we're embarking, uh, I'm sorry, in patients with PMR. We're embarking on a new era of PMR and GCA therapy with the use of newer biologic therapies. We have the IL-6 inhibitor approved. Um, now there's research here with rituximab. We talked about in the past the Titan study with secukinumab being very encouraging. We're going down the path of expensive therapies. I like this idea of maybe one dose of, of uh, inducing remission um, and then continuing them on with traditional therapy. We need to see more studies like that. Um, a study of 320 patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis looked at ENT involvement. And ENT involvement included all the typical things, inc including saddle nose deformity. Um, these patients were 50 years old um, and a very high Birmingham vasculitis activity score. Uh, it turns out that even those these patients were on immunosuppressors and had received either cytoxan or rituxan, that uh, relapse rates were high, and it didn't matter whether you received cytoxan or rituxan. So the point being that if you have ANCA-associated vasculitis and you have ENT involvement, the ENT involvement is a common feature that can persist despite getting aggressive biologic or immunosuppressive therapy. And it may require in itself aggressive co-management with the ENT, maybe chronic therapy with uh, uh, sulfamethoxazole and trimethoprim. Um, that's usually what I do in patients who've had problematic ENT. They're on a chronic dose of, of Bactrim, if you will, um, much like you would do with PJP. Um, speaking of PJP, uh, a study of nearly 200 patients in the RAVE trial. You know, in the RAVE trial, they treated them either with rituximab or cytoxan, I think, in the first go-around six months, followed by chronic maintenance therapy with azathioprine. In this study, they looked at the infection rates, and it turns out most of the serious infections, 82% of them, were actually seen in the first six months of disease, with two-thirds of those being uh, pulmonary infections. And, of course, that's the kind that kill here. Uh, it turns out that the patients who had these serious infections were more likely to have lower numbers of CD19 positive B cells uh, at baseline. And if they had received trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole prophylaxis for uh, pneumocystis urovecae, they actually had even lower SIE rates as well. So who gets PJP prophylaxis in my hands? Yeah, patients like this with GPA who are going to go either on rituximab or cytoxin. Both are high-risk 
therapies for uh, chronic infection and PJP. So those really need prophylaxis. Patients are going to be on uber high doses of steroids, and patients who are profoundly immunosuppressed would be would round out my list. Interesting um, review published by Janet Pope and colleagues looked at sort of the current state of therapy in systemic sclerosis, especially patients with early diffuse systemic sclerosis, where she said, uh, and they, in their review said, you know, mycophenolate is probably the go-to drug of choice, more so than cytoxin. And then with problematic cases, people looking at rituximab or tocilizumab. Uh, if you have scleroderma-associated ILD, same thing, mycophenolate wins over cytoxin. And then only in problematic cases or when, when you're really struggling, do you consider the newer therapy, nintendinib or perfenidone, which is not FDA-approved for use in uh, systemic sclerosis-associated ILD. Patients with rainouts and digital ulcers, calcium channel blockers are the mainstay uh, of therapy with supplementation by PD, phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors, things like Viagra and, and, and longer forms, Ilopros and uh, Bosentan in some. What's the role of stem cell, autologous stem cell transplantation? Um, maybe there's a role in rapidly progressive diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis, but again, it's hard to know. Another study that was out there recently was a, a meta-analysis of at least three clinical trials along with 19 observational studies, and they showed that hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, HSCT, was very effective at improving both skin scores, modified Rodman skin scores, skin thickness, and also lung function, at least stabilizing lung function. While the patients receiving stem cell transplants had more deaths than did the comparator groups who received IV cytoxin, the patients who received stem cell transplantation had significantly higher two-year survival rates. I think that's the way to go. You know, what are you doing with systemic sclerosis this day, these days? Uh, I mean, it is the hardest diagnosis that we have to take care of. I think every newly diagnosed patient with at least the diffuse cutaneous disease needs to be in a protocol, needs to be in some kind of research. I don't like these options as laid out by Dr. Pope and her colleagues. They are okay, but really we still are looking for the holy grail and therapy here. And there have been a number of encouraging therapies, including rituximab and including JAK inhibitors, mainly tofacitinib-based trials that are good, but we need better, longer trials. And I think patients with this kind of dose of diagnosis should be entered into clinical trials um, no matter where they are. So let's move on. Beta-2 microglobin, do you measure that in your lupus patients? I don't. Well, in this particular study of 100 patients with SLE, very strong correlations between beta-2 microglobulin and other measures of lupus activity, including 24-hour protein levels, creatinine levels, disease activity, and damage score, all highly significantly correlated with beta-2 microglobulin P less than 0.001 negatively correlated with uh, GFR complement levels. Uh, and basically, um, if you had uh, abnormalities of beta-2 microglobin, you were at much higher risk of developing lupus nephritis. Beta-2 microglobulin has been used as a measure of kidney disease, 
of myeloma and lymphoma and a few other cancers and a few other renal disorders and amyloidosis. Um, it has not routinely been applied to lupus. And last week we talked about, or in weeks past, we talked about newer biomarkers being developed in lupus, urinary biomarkers, which are going to be much better than what we're currently doing, which is urinalysis, looking for proteinuria, hematuria, and complement levels, which turned out to be not as good as we think that they are. Uh, a study of the prevalence of psoriatic arthritis in Sweden, they come up with the best data there. Basically, it's 0.34% of the population. Um, it was lower in males and higher with high, uh, um, higher levels of education. It was lower in males and those who had higher levels of education, meaning high education, lower risk, low education, higher risk. We've seen that in many disorders. Um, the sad news is of the 034 um, maybe about two-thirds of them have seen some rheumatologic care. Maybe that's good news, I guess. Um, and it is Sweden. I think they're better at doing that. But sadly so, these um, psoriatic arthritis patients, only 32% of them are taking biologics and or targeted synthetic therapies, and 41% are on, bio, are on conventional DMARDs. So... Um, some of this means that we need to be more aggressive in therapy. Some of this maybe means that we need to find these patients earlier and get them into rheumatologists sooner. I think that's something we'd all like to see. Another study from Sweden, the Artist Registry, looked at cancer in patients with RA or PSA. Their overall registry includes about 15,000 patients um, who were starting a JAK inhibitor or a TNF inhibitor with the diagnosis of RA or PSA. Turns out that with a median follow-up of two years, cancer rates were basically the same between those receiving first-time JAK inhibitor, first-time TNF inhibitor. Um, and this was looking at all cancers, excluding the skin cancers, non-melanoma skin cancer. However, if you looked at incident non-melanoma skin cancer, the rates of, uh, of skin cancer were higher, twofold, significantly higher, and twofold higher with a hazard ratio of 2.12 for the JAK inhibitor compared to the TNF inhibitor. Again, it's kind of hard to look at this data. You know, most cancer studies don't include data on non-melanoma skin cancer because one, it's so common, two, it's not usually measured in the SEER database so having historic controls on those rates is not um, all that accurate um, in many of the past analyses looking at cancer risk. So, but nonetheless, this does say that these patients who who get JAKs might be at higher risk. I think you know that's an interesting in light of the data that was presented in oral surveillance where there was a cancer risk for lung cancer uh, and lymphoma, uh, and of course it did not include non-melanoma skin cancer in those analyses. Um, another study this week looked at the association of bullous pemphigoid. I don't know if you see bullous pemphigoid. I get to see a number of them. I work closely with the medical dermatologists in my community. They see these. These are really difficult to treat patients. And the question, you know, the, the thing came up in this particular report is what are the associations with bullous pemphigoid? We know that we sometimes see bullous Pemphigoid in patients with autoimmune disease like RA and like lupus. In this particular report, said that there's a um, a small but um, recurrently seen associated with hematologic diseases, and that would include hemophilia A, 
the hyper eosinophil syndrome, autoimmune thrombocytopenia, ATP, aplastic anemia, and hematologic malignancies, including myelodysplastic syndrome and CLL, to mention a few. So we're going to end with a, um, a report about long-term survival in uh, the inflammatory myopathies. This was, I think, in clinical experimental rheumatology. This is a cohort study of 158. Was it 158 or am I making that up? Yeah, I think it was 158 patients with, um, with inflammatory myopathy. And they follow them over time um, to see what their survival was. Most of these patients, well, so what was most common? Not surprisingly, the most common was uh, dermatomyositis, uh, 35%, um, polymyositis, 25%, and the overlap myopathies at about 21%. They used the Bowen and Peter, Peter classification for idiopathic inflammatory myopathy. Three quarters of these patients were treated with steroids and um, uh, and also uh, immunosuppressives, getting an, on average one to three immunosuppressives. Turns out that the comorbidities, the complications of disease, interstitial lung disease, 38%, GI manifestations, 36%, and cardiac involvement, 23%. The predictors of survival, or I should say predictors of mortality, were number one, age. Number two, cardiac involvement. And number three, the occurrence of infections. So when you looked at survival rates in, in these patients, um, the median follow-up in this study was three and a half, 13 and a half years. Overall, 29% had died, and, and infection being the most common, I think uh, cardiovascular was the second most common cause of death. Five-year survival, 10-year survival, was not bad, 89%, 74%. When you got to 15 and 20, it wasn't quite as good, 67 and 62%. In 25 years, not good at all, 43%. The problems are that with time, again, these people are diagnosed with a median diagnosis uh, age of about 40 years, um, and at age 65, um, the survival is only 43%, meaning 57% had died. That's not encouraging. And I think that, again, this speaks to the need for early diagnosis, the early identification of cardiac involvement and the aggressive um, surveillance for and prevention of infection in this cohort. Our last report is about does biologic treatment in psoriasis reduce the risk of psoriatic arthritis? In this particular cohort of 15,000 psoriasis patients, uh, less than 1,976 developed uh, inflammatory or psoriatic arthritis at a rate of 6.3%. The risk of future development of inflammatory arthritis was significantly lower if you received ustekinumab, the IL-1223 inhibitor, with a 42% reduced risk, or if you received an IL-1223 inhibitor with a 59% reduced risk. This is compared to if you had received a TNF inhibitor. Turns out that there was no difference in future risk of psoriatic arthritis if you were on an IL-17 inhibitor, meaning that they were basically non-inferior to each other and the confidence intervals crossed over one. So does this mean that 1223 and 23 inhibitors are the preferred therapy might forestall the development of psoriatic arthritis? These kinds of studies are fraught with all kinds of, of bias, you know, and confounding because 
It has a lot to do with what the docs in, in these studies were doing as far as what was their intention by choosing a TNF inhibitor over IL-1223, over a... And of course, since they have psoriasis, they're going to get a 1223 uh, or 23-inhibitor or 17-inhibitor probably before they get an, uh, a TNF inhibitor, would they not? Um, and of course, this, does, this is going to reflect some of the changes in time in the dermatology world as to what the preferred therapy is. Anyway, this issue has come up before with other biologic therapies. Do psoriasis patients who get biologic therapy have less psoriatic arthritis? Many studies have said yes. So there's a little bit of smoke there without necessarily proving that there's fire. Uh, I put this out there with the hope that someone can do a really well-designed, propensity-matched, prospective study that will answer this question because is not psoriasis preclinical psoriatic arthritis? It's an at-risk population. What if you treat them aggressively? Are we not talking about this in other diseases like RA and lupus, etc.? What goes around keeps coming around here in rheumatology. We'll see you at Room Now Live in one week. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.